there's a T-Mobile commercial where these, these two colleagues are talking about a business dinner that they're going to go to uh, later that evening. And, and I'm going to look at this. Let me get this right. The one of them says, I'm, I'm really nervous. I don't know what I should wear. And her friend says, just wear something not too crazy. Remember, it's a business dinner, not a costume party. But because she doesn't have T-Mobile, right? she has a bad phone network, uh, what she hears... Uh, and the sound, what she hears is, her friend says, just wear something crazy. Remember, it's a costume party. And so she shows up at the business dinner at this re- nice restaurant dressed for Halloween, right? And so I thought, you know, that commercial reflects some, a really fundamental important truth. Not about your phone network. That may be true for you. But the, the, un- the important underlying truth is that how the message that you hear is going to impact how you, how you act, right? And we've been talking about, in Galatians, about the one true gospel. And, and, and by comparing that to a false gospel that was being spread around, the, the gospel that you hear is going to affect how you understand that message, that good news message of Jesus is going to affect the choices that you make. It's going to affect how you live, how you show up every day in life. So last week, we, this is our last week in, in the book of Galatians. We're going to be um, moving on to an, a great new series next week on, on core values, who we really are as people and as a church. And I, hopefully in this six-week series, you've had an opportunity to read through Galatians, and you've had an opportunity to have some conversations with people about the things that you've read in your small group or your family or whatever it might be. But you'll remember how we began that Paul had visited this region, and he shared the message of Jesus with them, and he's the one who led them to faith in Christ and started the churches there, but he had to move on to other places to share with other regions as well. And so after Paul left, a group of Jewish-based teachers came into that area with a different message. And they came in saying that to be right with God, you need Jesus, but you also need good works. And in particular, they were saying you need to start following all of the rules and regulations of the Jewish Old Testament law. That's why they were called the Judaizers. They were trying to Judaize the Christian message. And so Paul had to write this letter to the Galatian churches. He had to write back to them to to make sure they didn't fall for that, to remind them of what he had told them from day one. He said, there's this one gospel, this one message. The word gospel just means good news, right? He said, here's the good news that God delivered to me, I delivered to you, is that you're right with God by Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. And so in the first four chapters of Galatians, he built the theological foundation for that, for that true gospel, that truth. He showed a lot of different ways why that makes sense and, and why that's the truth. And then in chapters 5 and 6, where we're at now, he's exploring the practical implications of that one true gospel. If it's true, if, you, if, if salvation is really by Jesus plus nothing. And if you embrace that truth and you start to live that truth and, and um, those beliefs, though, that theology leads to a certain kind of life. It leads to a changed life. It leads to a life that's lived in the center of God's grace where we are not 
dominated by sin on the one hand, and we're not enslaved to religious laws, rules, and checklists on the other. And so today we're going to look at, th- at three specific ways that the Holy Spirit applies the gospel to our lives to bring about transformation or change. Okay, so number one, the transformation is relational. True believers gently and humbly help people when they fall into sin. So here's the thing is that all of us are relational creatures, right? We're embedded in relationships in every aspect of our lives. No man man is an island, as the poet once said, right? So we're going to have relationships, and it's such an important part of life that why wouldn't the, the gospel, if it's transformative, why would we not expect it to touch and change that area of our lives as well? So looking in Galatians chapter 6, the very first, he leads off with this very first thing. He says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. So he says that we have a responsibility to each other, to help each other honor God in our lives. See, none of us is ever going to be completely perfect or free from sin as long as we're living in this world. We saw last week in chapter 5, right, that the sinful nature is still at work within us, and we we overcome that by the Holy Spirit. So we are going to need some help from each other in this area. Now, there's two parties that he identifies in these verses. On one hand, he says sometimes there's one party, that's a person who falls into sin. That's a Christian who blew it, made a mistake, maybe backslid, or maybe you know, stumbled with some area or has some, some area in their life that they just can't seem to overcome. And then he says, on the other hand, there's the person he calls the godly person. Okay, And, and the thing is, is that you and I are going to be both of those at different times in our lives, right? Now, when he talks about the godly person, he's not talking about somebody who's gotten to, perf- to perfection. He's not talking about someone who's better than anybody else. He's just talking about that person who, at that time in their life, they're being led by the Spirit. They're con- seeking to consistently honor God with their lives. And so that's the person that says we're called, when, that's, when we're in that good place, we're called to help somebody else who maybe not be in a, as good of a place. And so... Then the other side of it is the person who has stumbled. Now, we've all done that, right? And I don't know about you, but what I've observed is that a lot of times when Christians stumble or fall into something, like, like we don't really always want the help, right? Because we, we, we don't want anybody to know. We maybe want to hide that. We maybe want to keep up our image, um, you know, we, we don't, maybe we like what we're doing. We don't want to, we're not ready to deal with it yet because we haven't tasted the consequences of it yet, maybe, right? And so, and so maybe we can be ashamed, maybe we can be stubborn. But it says that even though that person might be resistant at first or might not want to deal with it, that when you're walking with the Spirit, then it's our job to help that person to honor God in their life. Now, he says, he gives some instruction about how to do that, right? He says two things. He says, number one, you got to be gentle. You're not going to come to that person with a hammer. You're not going to come and be harsh with them and judgmental and, 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 and pound them, you know, about the problem in their life. And he says, the other thing is, you've you got to be humble. 
We're not going to be arrogant about that. We're not going to be judgmental about that. Humble means a couple things. It means here that, okay, first of all, I observe something in your life. I might not have it totally right. I might not, I might not see all the factors that are in, in work in your life. So I'm going to come to you and say, look, look here, I love you. Here's what I see. See, I, I'm not saying I have all the right answers for you, but, but i got to bring it up. And humble also means that's a recognition that I realize that, man, tomorrow I could be in that position. That someday in the future, I will be that person who needs to hear maybe from you in, in my life. Now, now, here's the connection to the gospel. He said, okay, the first four chapters lead directly to the last two chapters. There's a connection between what we believe and how we live. And so here's the connection to the gospel. So if you really understand the gospel, that we're right with God by Jesus plus nothing, and you've experienced then God's grace and mercy in your life, right, then then that totally changes how you look at other people, right? If I recognize, man, I'm a sinner so deeply in need of God's grace that I can't look judgmentally or, or superiorly toward other people. I, I can't look at them and say, you know, you're, you're a sinner, you blasted sinner, you know, I'm a sinner. And if I know that God has, in the gospel says, God has accepted that other person unconditionally in Christ, then why wouldn't I also accept them the same way? And the gospel reminds me that I'm a helpless sinner, that I needed his, God's help. And so I'm going to want to come alongside somebody else and give them help in their life as well. So that's how the gospel works out um, in, in this area. So here's how the Bible uh, expositor commentary um, talks about that. I lost that slide. Um, there it is. Christians should restore the person who has fallen into sin. The verb used here is a medical term used for setting a fractured bone. What's wrong in the life of the fallen Christian must be set straight. And so you see, notice the goal of this conversation. The goal, it says in Galatians, is to help that person back into the right path. The goal is restoration. I can think of a lot of reasons, a lot of times and situations I've seen where Christians approach somebody else about their problem, but not from the goal of restoration. Have you seen that? You, maybe somebody confronted you, or maybe you did it at some point in time because you just wanted to get, you wanted to score some points. You wanted to get back at that person, make them pay. You wanted to embarrass them. Maybe you wanted to put the spotlight off of you and your problems, or maybe make yourself look better than somebody else. But he says the only reason ever to bring something up to someone's attention like this is for the purpose of restoring them. And when you do that, then you're operating out of that sweet spot of grace because you become a conduit of God's grace to help that person get out of the ditch and, and back on the road again. Now we saw last week that the Holy Spirit wants to create in us the intent of God's law, the heart and the core of God's law. And, and he says that in a fresh way here in, in Galatians 6, verse 2. He says, share each other's burdens. Okay? And so he says, when you do that, you're actually fulfilling the law. Not the rigid nuts and bolts of the Old Testament law or the religious rules, but he says you're fulfilling the law of Christ. You're fulfilling the heart of what matters to, to Jesus. And so if you love people, remember the, the heart of the law, love God, love people. If you love people, then 
You want to help them overcome the, the burden and, and share the burden of, of their sin with them and help them get right with God. And, and you want to do it in a way that restores them, not crushes them. See, that's what Jesus wants from us. So that's one way that, um, you know, this works, where, where the gospel transforms our lives. And here's the second way that he touches on here. The transformation is financial. True believers give to the needs of the local church. Now, Paul talked about money quite a bit. And in fact, he's taking his cues from Jesus because Jesus talked about money and finances and the things related to that a lot. Why? Because they recognize, and the Bible recognizes, that this is such an important part of our lives. It's central to our whole being. And, and what we do with money and how we think about money and things reflects our heart. And it reflects what we love and what we value. And so the point is, if the gospel is truly transformational in our lives, then why would it not touch something as central and as important as this, as our financial life? And so he actually uh, he brings it up in verse 6, and then we're going to take a look at verses 6 and 10, then we'll go back in a minute and look at the verses in between them. He says, those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. And then secondly, therefore, when, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. So he identifies two actions that have financial implications. Number one, he says that we should provide materially for the people who teach the word of God, who, who minister to us spiritually, the shepherds of the flock. And then he says, secondly, we should just be generous whenever we can. To everybody around us when we see a need, and he says, he says not excluding but anyone, but starting, first of all, with the family of faith. Okay, so, so I, I've thought, thinking about that, I was thinking about how have I learned this in my life. You know, I haven't always been in vocational ministry. I became a Christian in college years, and so for several years before I started being a pastor, this, this for some reason... God just put this on my heart. This was always my practice to give to the church where I attended. And, and two reasons. I wanted to see those pastors that served me, I wanted them to be free from the burden of financial obstacles and financial needs so that they could, so they could devote their time to the care of the flock. And then secondly, I wanted to see the things that the church can do to meet the needs of the community, practical needs. Now, now. You can meet practical needs of people all around you without necessarily doing it through the church, and you should. But the fact, what I learned is that when we do it together, we can do some things that are far greater than I could do alone. So, for example, I think about Alpine Cares Ministry and how many lives are touched, but I couldn't really do that by myself. I think about Missions Week and, and thousands of dollars that are raised to go touch thousands of people locally and around the globe. I couldn't do that by myself. And so, and there's the, the unseen thing that in all of our campuses, we have people who are coming to our pastors privately and, and asking for much needed help with rent and utilities and things like that. So we can do that together. They're not gonna, they're not gonna come to you privately maybe. If they do, then you could help. But they're gonna come often to a church. And so, so we're trying to, to, to see that. And to, to be able to be transformed to people who are generous. Now, how does that reflect the gospel in our lives? Well, everything that we have in salvation 
is a result of God's generosity and grace, right? We don't, uh, we don't earn salvation. We don't earn God's favor. It's all of, because what Jesus has done for us and what he freely gives us. And you know what? It, it's the same thing for our material provision as well, that he provides for us freely and generously, just like he does in salvation. So everything that you own in your home, the car that you drove here today, um, every dollar that you're paid on payday, ultimately, that comes from God. That's God's provision to you. Now, he might use an employer. He might use someone else as an intermediary, but that's ultimately God's provision for you. And so recognizing how generously and freely God has given to us, we want to reflect the grace of God and reflect the gospel in in what we do. And so we give. We give to others. We give to the church not because it's a rule on a checklist, not because it's something that a church says, you know, you, you got to do this or, or, or you're not in good standing or whatever. No, we do it as an overflow of our gratitude from the kindness and generosity of God to us. See, that's how the gospel works. So you see the larger pattern here? That those who accept the one true gospel are transformed by it. See, People who have been forgiven forgive others. Right? People who have been rescued from sin will help other people overcome sin. People who have received God's generous financial and material provision then will freely give it away to others. Now he comes back in the context. I want to look at the verses in between now. So we'll come back to verse 7. He says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So here's a principle that everybody should understand. A biblical principle of God's justice that he's built into the very created order of things that we will reap what we sow. That the decisions that we make are going to have consequences, right? So that you got to understand this in life. Okay, now, I want you to see the context for a minute, because in verse 6, he talks about providing for the the people who bring teaching, providing for the ministry, and then verse 7, he immediately talks about this this principle of sowing and reaping. Did he just suddenly um, change the subject? I don't really think so. I think there's a connection between verse and 6 and 7. At very least, there, there's an application of this larger principle of planting and harvesting, an application of that to our financial lives. And so he says there's two ways. In general, there's two ways to sow or to plant. He says we can, we can sow to please our sinful nature or we can sow to please the Spirit, to please God, right? And if you take that, and apply that financially, he says, the things that God has blessed you with, you can just use them for yourself, for your own selfish desires, to get more stuff that you want, to get uh, more experiences, or, or just to you know, feed your own cravings. He says, the harvest that that brings is, is really not desirable. He says, or you can take the, the financial resources that God has given you, you could sow them to please the Spirit, or you could take 
the portion of what God has given you and, and give it, not spending on yourself, but giving it back to God's work and God's purposes and giving it forward to other people around you. And he says the harvest that you reap from that is eternal. So here's what we've got so far in chapters 5 and 6. As we, try, as we live by the Spirit instead of the sinful nature, and as we learn to live by the Spirit instead of following religious rules and regulations, and as we live out the one true gospel of Jesus plus nothing, then the result is that we experience the Spirit transforming us, transforming His work in our lives, and it changes our relationships, and it changes our finances. Okay, there are two, two key things in our lives. And finally, there's one more larger theme that he addresses because he wants us to show that it's not just limited to relationships. It's not just limited to finances. So third, let's take a look at this. He says that the transformation affects everything because individuals become new creations who together become the new people of God. Now remember what the Judaizers were saying, that you have to follow Jesus, but you also have to follow the Old Testament law. And that included circumcision for all males. Males were circumcised at, at eight days old as a sign of following God. Well, Paul says, now to conclude, he says, look, circumcision doesn't change a person. Keeping all the regulations of the law doesn't transform a person from the inside out. And so here's how he, he, how he expresses that in verses 15 and 16. It doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we've been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. And so, see, when you embrace the gospel, and you, you put your trust in Jesus alone and Jesus plus nothing. He says you, you become a, a new creation. Something new happens to you. And that the transformation that begins in that defining moment of faith and it works itself out successively for the rest of your life on this world. And he says the result is you begin to live by a new principle. That we don't live anymore by the principle of keeping religious rules and laws. He said instead we live by this principle. We live out of our new identity as the people of God. Have you ever been to a, a citizenship ceremony? Now, I never have, but Sally had the opportunity, it was September of 2019, to go observe this, the, uh, the citizenship ceremony down in Salt Lake. It was a, a kid who had been a, a foreign exchange student in her household many years ago, and he grew up and lived in Utah, and he wanted to become an American citizen. And so she went down, he invited her down, she, and, and several dozen people stood up all at once and took this oath. It was a transformative moment in their lives, right? They are now a different person in a sense, right? They're, they're now, they have a new identity, right? They're now Americans. And so their lives will never be the same again. And that new identity is going to shape how they live for the rest of their lives. And that's the same thing that happens when you become a part of God's people, when you become a Christ follower, it changes you. Now, I want you to notice in, in these verses that that's not just an individual thing. It's not just me and Jesus, right? Because a lot of Christians in our culture today, 
just think that they can just do this by themselves. They don't really want to be part of the church. They don't really want, uh, they, don't, they don't feel like they need to be part of a body of, of believers. They don't feel like they need to be in a small group or have a mentoring relationship. That's not how God sees it, right? Because just as citizenship in our country makes you part of a new people with a history and with an identity, then the same thing, when you follow Jesus, you become part of, he says, the new people of God. And this is now your family. This is now your tribe. This is now your team. And it's intrinsically part of the new life, the transformation that God does in your life. He puts you in this family. And so this now, now identity, this new identity, it, it's more important and more fundamental than any other identity that you might claim. It's more foundational than your social identity, than your political identity, than your ethnic identity, than your national identity. Because this is something that God has done. This is something that God works in you, and it's something that's eternal. Now, there's another place in the Bible that talks about this this new thing, and it's in 2 Corinthians 5. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone A new life has begun. So see, when you entrust your life and you entrust your eternity to Jesus, then you literally, he says, you literally become a new person. The Bible talks about regeneration. That's just a fancy word to talk about a new birth. So literally, spiritually, you become born a second time when you come to follow Jesus. And so you have this new life, and this new life begins to take shape. And it says, the old life is gone. A new life has begun. How does that work? Well, let's do, a, let's do a thought experiment together. Let's do, what if I was to take you, I'm going to give you this challenge, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, a beaker or a glass and say, can you figure out how to get all the air out of that glass? And we're going to go down to the science lab where you can have all the techno- technology, all the equipment that you can have, that you can find, it's all at your disposal, and you're going you're, you're to solve this challenge, how do you get all the air out of that glass? And so you're thinking about all the ways that maybe you create a vacuum, and maybe you could somehow seal that glass and pump the air out of it, and, and, and how do you create a vacuum? And then finally, suddenly you might realize, oh, there's a simpler answer. The easiest way to get all the air out of that glass is to fill it with water. Boom. And it's done. You just fill it with water. No more air. And and that's a picture of this new life in Christ. When you have this new life in you and you're cultivating this relationship with Jesus as this new person, then that begins to displace the old. Right? And and, and sometimes you you wish the glass would get filled up right away. Right? But sometimes it gets filled up kind of slow. But it displaces the old. Those old attitudes, old thoughts, old habits, they begin to be removed, not by you trying to suck them out, but by instead you cultivating this new life that God has given you in Christ. And so that becomes our natural response is that we honor God with our lives because that's who you are now. And so bottom line is you can live in freedom, freedom from religious rules and regulations, You can experience the true intent of the law being birthed within you by the Holy Spirit. You can live in freedom from the slavery of sin. And in that freedom, you can have the ability to live for Jesus, to love God, to love others. Now, from within, from deep within, 
That's the transforming work of the gospel. And it touches your relationships. And it affects your pocketbook. And it shapes your very identity. And so when you get a hold of the gospel, and the the gospel gets a hold of you, then it affects everything about who you are. Now, I love how he closes the letter, okay, in in Galatians 6, uh, verses 12 and following. He says, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised, or in other words, to keep the law of Moses, want to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. But as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. So Paul says, look, it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about what we can do for God. It's about what he has already done for us. When Jesus died on the cross for us to set us free, he says, that is enough. And because of that, we don't have anything to boast about. We can't boast about our righteousness or how worthy we are or all the things that we've done to serve. We can't boast about our generosity or our our ministry. We can't boast about mentoring somebody or inviting somebody to church or or, or anything, really. And and so here's the Apostle Paul, and this is a guy who planted churches all over the ancient world where there weren't any, and he led who knows how many people to faith in Jesus, and he wrote a big part of the whole New Testament. And and with all of those credentials, he says, look, I'm not going to boast in anything except one thing in the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, listen, if the gospel was Jesus plus works, then you might have something to pat yourself on the back about. But it's not. The gospel is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus only. All Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. And that's enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Thank you for how awesome and good you are to us, Lord. Uh, That you have redeemed us. That you have met us in our need. And you have been so good to us. So merciful and gracious. You provided everything we need through Jesus. The forgiveness of our sins. You gave us a new life. Even in in the practical world, you surrounded us with relationships. And gave us a new way to live those. You gave us, you give to us financially, materially, the things that we need. And you give us the privilege of sharing with other people. You've given us a whole new life. You've made us new creatures, a whole new identity. Thank you. Thank you for being so good to us. We deserve none of it. And yet you've been so gracious and merciful to us. We pray that we would get this, get the gospel, and we would get this and we'd see how it plays out in our lives every day and that your Holy Spirit would come. And as we keep in step with you, God, that you'd work this powerful, transforming work, that your truth would burrow down into our souls and bring about this internal transformation that changes us from the inside out, starting now for the rest of our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name.
for his honor and glory. Amen.